Hello, I'm Rolf Fontenelle. This is the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast. And today we are speaking with Marilyn Lawrence, a woman who knows a thing or two about ancient astrology and specifically Plotinus on astrology. Marilyn, thanks so much for taking the time. Much Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So Plotinus isn't so engaged with ancient science, but the one place where he really gives us some really juicy argumentation is on this uh, ancient science of astrology. So first of all, for due diligence purposes, what are the main texts where he talks about astrology? What's interesting about this is there are three main places where he talks about it, and it's all during different periods of his life. So the first one is his uh, treatise on destiny or fate, uh, Hamermene, which is the third um, in his corpus. And then you have sort of this middle work. Uh, it's, it's kind of buried in, in, a, in a much longer uh, treatise on problems of the soul. And then at the very end, one of his last treatises is Are the Stars Causes? So second to last or third to last. So it's, it's pretty, pretty late in his life. So it seems to be an issue that um, he was engaged with throughout you know, his philosophical career, but in different ways. So I, I think later in life, he, he started to address uh, the astrological texts more properly and the language of these astrology texts. Right. So just for those who are following Ennead number, we're looking at Ennead 3.1, which is the third treatise chronologically, then 4.4, 4, uh, which is number 28 chronologically, which is, you mentioned, as part of a large treatise on the, the soul, and it probably was written as one piece with 4.3 and 4.4 4 as one huge, mm -hmm. very, very interesting treatise on the soul, especially interesting to me because it deals with the, a lot with the, lo the soul as in the cosmos dealing with the body and stuff like that, which is, in a way, the more difficult thing for Plotinus to talk about than the soul in the noetic mm -hmm. because it's dealing with fate and matter and all this kind of tricky stuff. And then last but not least, Treatise 52, chronologically, which is Ennead 2-3. So what does Plotinus have to say about astrology? Do we need to define what we mean by astrology? Oh boy, uh, that's a hard one. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, you could define astrology pretty broadly as the use of astral phenomena as a system of divination to make predictions, whether past, present, or future, about any terrestrial phenomenon, including people. Okay. So then, with that as our working definition, something like a physical theory of how astrology might work would be something like an astrological theory rather than astrology, qua astrology. Yes, probably. I mean, I think um, in late antiquity, astrology piggybacked off of Platonism, Platonic theories, um, Aristotelian cosmology, and it basically adapted itself in, in many ways to whatever the philosophical theories were out there, you know, such as Stoicism. You know, we, we find it's very um, attached to Stoicism uh, for some astrologers, like Betty's Valens, who you already covered, but not necessarily all of them. You know, I think some of the later astrologers were influenced by Neoplatonism, um, mm. Firmicus Maternus in particular, something I've been exploring a little bit. Um, and we don't necessarily um, 
we can't really say too much about what they theorized about because what we have are uh, basically basic textbooks that don't necessarily go into theory, um, with the exception of here and there, like you find in Vettius Valens. Or Ptolemy. And Ptolemy. I, I, <laughs> I'm, did not want to leave out Ptolemy um, because he is quite unique in um, sort of going against the grain of what you find in the other astrological works and, and really taking that, that physical causality, the hot, cold, wet, and dry motif, you know, stars as causes, as influences, stars being mostly, we're talking about planets, uh, the wandering stars. So including the sun um, and the moon for anyone who's forgotten about the geocentric Hellenistic cosmos. They were called the lights, but they were also considered wandering, so they were part of the, the whole system. Hmm. In Plotinus's understanding of astrology, um, it seems that if he is arguing against uh, stars as causes, and I say he's arguing against, but he's also arguing for in certain cases, he, he probably was later in life familiar with Ptolemy's work, the Tetrabiblos. Maybe it was introduced to him through Porphyry, who was definitely familiar with the work since he wrote an introduction to the work. Um, and I say wrote in quotes because most of what is in this introduction was stolen from Antiochus of Athens, you know, an earlier astrologer. Right. <laughs> There's a, a few u- unique chapters, but um, yeah, the introduction to that, like the very beginning, the preface is, is interesting to me because it seems almost, it almost seems like a response to Plotinus, where, um, you know, for those who, you know, just talk about, you know, what Ptolemy wrote, you know, those who have read what Ptolemy wrote don't know about all these other things and these other uh, techniques that Ptolemy left out. And so, you know, I'll present this, this work for you to judge. So um, it's pretty interesting, you know, to try to speculate on what kind of conversations went on that we don't have actual texts for, you know, about astrology. And um, I, I really think Porphyry was kind of like this goad for Plotinus to address astrology again later. Okay. You know, by maybe even presenting him with some of the technical works so he could become more familiar with it. That's interesting because we will when we get to Porphyry, we definitely want to dis- discuss Porphyry the astrologer, on whom some some work has been done recently, because he mm-hmm. he's really into this stuff. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and um, well, Plotinus is interested in it and takes it seriously, but has is maybe not so into it. I wonder if it's possible to ask you to give us a run through of Plotinus's take on astrology. How does sure. it work? Um, How does it not work? <laughs> Well, if we start with the first treatise on fate. fate, the arguments that he presents are basically more against maybe a Stoic version of fate, you know, that everything is predetermined, you know, by, by fate, you know, all events. It's more like a causal chain than anything else. And so for astrologers who latch on to this point of view, he would be arguing against astrology working in this particular way. So, um, so you have that where, you know, it's astrology is basically 
you know, a doctrine of fate and, and everything is predetermined. And, and that would explain how people can make, uh, you know, learned people, people who study astrology can make predictions. And in that earlier work, um, you do see some of those traditional arguments that are coming from the academic skeptic school of Carneades, which are repeated in Sextus Empiricus, who's basically about a century before Plotinus. So you can see like three, three of those arguments, or actually two, two and a half. One, one is <laughs> slightly modified. But what you do find in Plotinus is just sort of this general argument that people born at the same time don't necessarily share the same fate. Right. So the twins argument. The twins argument, exactly. It's an empirical argument. And, you know, you have to actually go out and observe and make sure that people born at the same time in the same place don't have the same fate. <laughs> so, but it's, it's sort of assumed that this is common sense. And... Uh, the second argument that you find find in this treatise that's repeated in Plotinus is that animals <laughs> that are born at the same time as human beings obviously don't share the same fate either. <laughs> so um, that's a good one. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very interesting. It's almost like you know the genetics, you know, and you know the species and physical substance doesn't necessarily play a role, you know, in what astrologers should be able to predict. There is a, another argument, which is kind of interesting, that you find in Carnades, well, supposedly in Carnades, um, definitely in Sexus Empiricus, which has to do with the claims in certain astrological doctrines of being able to predict physical traits, you know, whether somebody is fair-skinned, you know, what kind of hair they have, what their appearance is, is like, and basically... The skeptical argument is how, where you're born and your ethnicity has a lot more to do with that um, and it is an explanation for that rather than astrological explanations. Hmm. So, for you know, somebody who I, I actually I think it's in Empiricus, he says, or gives an example of Virgo. You know, Virgo in the astrological tradition, according to Empiricus, is, indicates uh, white skin and straight hair. Right, but that doesn't work in Africa. Yes, the example he gives is, is Ethiopia. Like, what about all the Virgos in Ethiopia? <laughs> so, yeah, so that's sort of an, an argument that you kind of see a, a very slight hint of in Treatise Three One. Okay, you know, it's it's similar, but he's actually just mentions physical appearance and that uh, it's more likely caused by your parents and and you know your genetics rather than uh, the stars. Right. So, so what you see early on is basically sort of a re repeat of the, the traditional arguments against astrology in, in the skeptical schools. You, which is, you don't which is, see much that's original. But that's very interesting because up till now in our discussion of Plotinus's um, intellectual lineage, we've mentioned all the usual suspects, right? So Plato, obviously, Aristotle, um, and then the Porphyry's comments that there's some kind of hidden Stoic doctrines in his thought. And Numenius, very prominent as an intellectual ancestor and some other Middle Platonists. But we haven't talked at all about the skeptical academy and the mm -hmm. fact that these Hellenistic authors, most of whose works are now lost to us, seemingly are either well-known to Plotinus in their writings or at, or at least he knows some of the arguments that he, they propounded. And he uses them when 
he wants to, when he has a, a reason to. So that's our first treatise on fate. I guess he's coming at it from the point of view of fate, the question of Hemarmene, rather than the specific point of view of the stars per se in that treatise. Right. And and as a as a Platonist, he pretty adamant about preserving uh human choice. Yeah. You know, the the choice of the soul. You know, and um uh you know what's according to us. Hmm. So moving on to four four, treatise twenty-eight. Um now we talked about this treatise in our discussion of Plotinus on ritual practices. Um, mm-hmm. AKA magic in some cases, because it's here where he gives this really, really um, in-depth account of the theory and practice of powerful rituals, things like uh, love spells and katetesmoi, like curses or um, binding spells. And he says they work basically entirely through the stars. He gives like a kind of astral theory of magic. His discussion of planets and stars and, you know, their natures is kind of right in the middle there. You know, starting at um, chapter 30, chapter 29 or 30, where, um, you know, he wants to address whether these planetary gods, do they help people as well as as harm? <laughs> you know, do, do they have any intention to harm harm people? Um, and that, again, ties in with, with magic, you know, in terms of claims in, in magic, you know, to harm people, binding spells, that kind of thing. And, you, and, have, and um, you have to preserve the goodness of the gods somehow in all of this. Right. So he also wants to ask certain questions about whether the planets have memory. Mm. Do they do they remember prayers? <laughs> you know, is that how that works? That, that they're remembering that somebody has prayed to them so they can respond. Uh, do they have sight? You know, can they see, see things? What kind of sense, senses do they have? Um, he actually concludes that they don't have memory, <laughs> which I think is interesting, but do have the other senses like sight. So so he kind of sets it up that way. He sets up the problems this way. Also asking whether, um, what kind of effects they bring about on earth. And when he's talking about the effects, he's, he's talking about them all combined, you know, as the um, circuit, as it's called the heavenly circuit, which is, you know, all the planets and their rotations, you know, around the earth. From, from our perspective. And one, one of the first things that he, he addresses is whether they are hot and cold, because what you find in astral, astrological theory, you have certain associations of planets like Saturn as being a cold planet, uh, planets like Mars being a hot planet. And um, he basically doesn't think that they you know, have that type of quality that they're all fiery in a sense, fiery in the, in the sense, not, not of um, earth, air, fire, and water, but I read this as more ethereal. Like, you know, they have like ether. <laughs> I think so. I think he's, my take on it is he wants to have a quintessence along the lines of Aristotle, but he can't, mm-hmm. he's not going to go against Plato and say that there's a fifth element, which is the ether, which is this imperishable special stuff that the stars are made of. So he just says the stars have bodies of fire, but it's like special fire because he he very clearly says in many different places that the the celestial realm above the moon is made of different stuff than the lower right and and when it comes to these elements or qualities you know is in in the Aristotelian he he asks what kind of effects they would have on earth 
and in the sublunar realm. And he's saying they can't be traced to these qualities you know, because everything gets all mixed up down here. <laughs> yeah. And in the early treatise on fate, and also in this treatise, he, he specifically says, how can cold and hot lead to wickedness or arete on earth? Like, how can, how can vice and, you know, sort of ethical, moral categories come from a mix of temperatures right. or a mix of uh, right. influences in this sort of Aristotelian scheme? And, and there's definitely, um, within this schema, the idea, and, and actually, you know, this goes back to Plato as well, <laughs> you know, the idea that the planets have a say in temperament and in disposition, including ethical disposition. But Plotinus is saying in this treatise that they can't be responsible for, for that kind of thing. We can't really trace, trace their influences to this, and especially fortune, you know, because, you know, astrological uh, doctrine would claim, you know, that you can trace fortune, um, whether somebody becomes wealthy, you know, ill health, that kind of thing, and not just of that person, but also of their family, you know, whether, you know, they have siblings or not. <laughs> you know, is, is something that astrology would, would be able to predict. But of course, what he's arguing against is this causal model that, you know, it's because of these qualities um, that each planet has, you know, that is cause for temperament, for uh, fortunes and so forth. Right. So um, he, he kind of starts off his arguments this way and then basically claims that the planets don't really don't really care about us that much <laughs> in the sense like they're not intimately involved in our destinies. He doesn't think that they um, would direct their attention down here in, in such a deliberate way, <clears throat> which is interesting. I'm not sure if it's, um, you know, coherent with, with everything else that he says. <laughs> right. Well, let's talk about the last treatise. If, have we covered the, the middle treatise? Well, well, actually, there is like one really important kicker you know, that he throws in here. And, and this goes back to um, magic again, and that's uh, sympathia. Yeah. You know, that we're talking about like the whole circuit, the heavenly circuit. So for Plotinus, this is actually um, related to the cosmic soul. So this, 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 uh, this whole soul, all soul, you know, there's, there's different terms that are used for, for, for it. Um, and he's talking about like, if you look at his treatise on Providence, you know, it's, it's the, the entire universal being, <laughs> you know, he refers to it as like a living being, you know, that, um, you know, has its own, you know, basically has the agenda of the good, you know, it's always geared toward the good. Um, but it has a lot of parts. So it's these parts that, seem to bring about good and evil, you know, through their actions, through interactions with other parts. But it's actually the, um, like, we can't really say whether it's good or evil, you know, things that seem to be evil are actually quite good. You know, the workings of nature, such as a forest, you know, you have tall trees, you have small trees, you know, it's like, you know, th those little, those little trees may be suffering in a sense because, you know, they can't grow as, as big as the tall trees, but the whole, it's all for the purpose of the whole, you know, it's, it's all working as it should in a sense, you know, in this providential way, but, but the actual parts themselves are 
orchestrating themselves and arranging themselves in, in these different patterns that have their own little agendas. <laughs> so, but well, the, the big point of this is really that it's sympathia that b- binds it all together. You know, that there is this universal sympathy. So in a sense, he is borrowing that from the Stoics and making it platonic in his own way. And doing so, I, it feels to me like with a, with a great deal of aplomb, like I do find that argument quite compelling in terms of a kind of, you know, theodicy or an, an argument for justifying how you can say the world is good while it contains evils. It's like, well, you know, the evil of a part is necessary for the good of the whole. Sort of end of right. argument, really, mm-hmm. you know, seems yeah. like a mm-hmm. really powerful approach. And within this argument, he does talk a little bit about, you know, the planets and their configurations. Um, and and this, this part is a little bit hard to follow, you know, in terms of causality. But um, he does seem to be saying that it doesn't have to do with the, the will of each, each planet as much as it has to do with, you know, them working together with the other planets in these configurations. And by doing so, they give off these side effects. So their intentions are always, you know, up toward the good, but, you know, their movements and their configurations bring about some type of causality, you know, some type of side effect, you know, in the sublunar realm. Um, It's hard to really um, figure out what this means for astrology, though. (laughs) Right. Uh, He also, this is also where he introduces significations, you know, where you know, stars give signs for things and they're the best and brightest to give signs for things, but they, um, um, because of this principle of sympathia, you know, where everything in, in a sense is connected and, you know, there's certain things that have correspondences, you know, like sun with sunflowers, you know, is mm-hmm. like a key example. But so, you know, you have these, these correspondences. So the stars are, the um basically best for giving signs you know for you know people who can read them mm. so that's not necessarily implying a causality but just a semiotic value in the stars yes yeah he he is jumping from the notion of causality to signification yeah. um but mm-hmm. <laughs> so you you have to kind of think of like how sympathia works it, it seems to be that certain things have likenesses. Some parts have likenesses with other parts. So what exactly does that mean in terms of how these signs operate? They're possible in a sense for Plotinus because they're all part of the whole. And to me, this would be like the, the biggest argument for astrology, <laughs> you know, is, the, is that, you know, these things that, that Mars indicate, you know, that that are, are related to Mars would, would influence, not influence, see, see there, there's that word again, the causal word <laughs> would, would give signs for uh, somebody who has Mars very prominent in their birth chart. And then, so if, if that's going on, you, you could have a theory of causality or you could have another theory or you could just shrug your shoulders and say, well, when, the, when Mars does this, this happens and that's all we know. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. But it, it is interesting, interesting that it's, it's introduced um, in this way, you know, when he's talking about the soul and, you know, this, you know, this cosmic soul and how it works and operates. Mm. Tell us about Treatise 2-3, 
52, one of his last writings on whether right. the stars are causes. Yeah. So, so this one, we start to get a little more into technical astrology. It seems like he is exposed at this point to the astrological language a little more than he was in the, in the previous two. He uses like different phrases that, that you might find in astrological texts and, and refers to different doctrines like hieresis, which is day and night. <clears throat> so whether you're born in the day or night um, sets, you know, whether the sun's below or above the horizon sets the tone for uh, the rest of the planets and whether they are comfortable, <laughs> you know, in their positions or not. So that is one thing that he refers to, which indicates he has, he has more exposure to the astrological language. It seems in this treatise, he is really focused on the language that astrologers are using. And he finds it absurd. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of cases where he he's, seems to be um, planets can't see one another. That sounds silly. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's actually, I mean, for him, the arguments that he gives have more to do with geometry, you know, in terms of like spherical geometry. And 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 he's he's trying to put himself in the position of this planetary god and where we are on Earth and take the observer out of the picture. So a lot a lot of his arguments are are about the moon, for instance, when the moon is full. Um, in conjunction with a certain planet, you know, it's supposed to be a, a good sign or, you know, means something good, gives that as an example. But he's basically saying the moon is, is dark to that planet. <laughs> and, they're, you know, the, the moon is, those planets are actually above, you know, and has no relationship to, like, the actual light of the moon at that time. So he's, he's giving these really interesting... <laughs> non-geocentric arguments hmm. that um like physical arguments yes mm -hmm. hmm. but but from the perspective of the actual planets because um the language that astrologers are using is basically a planet can see one another and also what position they are relative to to the horizon at birth is really important so that sets the pivots the the, the center sometimes it's translated centers or you know it's kentra which are the, the four important uh, points. You know, you have the, the two horizons, east and west, and then you have like midheaven and, and the um, opposite of the midheaven. So you have like these really important points called, called pivots. Is the opposite of midheaven sort of a notional spot underneath the earth where the planet is, but you can't see it? Is that the idea? It, it is. It's the, the, the midheaven is really the highest point in the chart and um, indicates in astrology language, you know, like your visibility, your career, public presence. Um, and then the below is basically your home life, like your, you okay. know, your, <laughs> your family, you know, stuff that's hidden. But planets are in, in astrological uh, doctrine, basically the, where they are relative to these pivots, whether they're on the right side or the left side, you know, indicates um, quite a bit in terms of the strength of the planets. Not just the strength, but also whether they are happy, <laughs> whether they whether they are happy in the sense to perform the the natural function of that planet. Right. So if if Venus is happy in your chart, you're going to have a lot of good home life and 
good luck and love and stuff like that. And if she's unhappy, you might end up having like a bunch of divorces or something. Is that the general right. idea? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. If, if your Venus is afflicted. <laughs> yeah. So, so he's actually like kind of takes or wants to take that part of the geometry, you know, out of the equation, you know, so that he's looking at from the perspective of the planets themselves and not from the chart, you know, as it's calculated from geocentric perspective. Hmm. Now, I wonder if I could ask you a few questions from my non-specialist perspective here. Plotinus clearly thinks that the stars are causes in some way. Mm-hmm. And signs, like the, some, if you know how to read them, you can tell what's going to happen and this sort of thing. So the, some basic premises of astrology are he leaves intact, but he's arguing with lots of detail type stuff. Seemingly in this last treatise, he's really arguing that the way astrology is practiced by certain astrologers can't be right. Is that a good way of looking at it? Yeah, and I, I think I think he's actually. I mean, I I really sense this is a straw man argument because okay. um, we don't actually know. And I would I would assume that astrologers who are using this particular language, like a planet seeing another planet. Um, <clears throat> throwing rays at another planet, or um, this type of language, and 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 astrologers actually, if you if you look at say Vedius Valens, you find a mixture of causal language, you know, of, of you know, planet causes something, and signifying language, and a planet signifies something. So it, it's not really clear that they actually were thinking in terms of you know. Literally, like these planets are seeing one another. It could very well be metaphorical. Right. It could actually translate into these configurations um, as signifying rather than necessarily causing, you know, for these astrologers. But um, Plotinus basically, you know, he's, he's latched on to <laughs> this language and is basically telling us how silly it is. Right. This is a really interesting argument. Uh, or you know, if we if we take his whole approach to astrology as as one thing, because it strikes me as certainly not the earliest anti-astrological or or you know sort of questioning astrology argument that we have, but um, a really influential one going forward in some circles, like from the Renaissance onwards, when Europeans in the West Western European people start to rethink astrology really in earnest, <laughs> they will use Plotinus as a as a key text. Do we have any ways that we can link Plotinus's, aside from what you've already mentioned, where he shares some arguments that are found in Sextus Empiricus, so he shares some arguments that go back to academic skepticism, whom, so there's already skepticism about astrology and antiquity, that's clear. Mm-hmm. Um, what other links can we draw between what Plotinus is doing here and other antique stuff? We can definitely link this to Ptolemy. You know, because again, Ptolemy is unique in presenting more of a naturalistic, physicalistic theory of astrology. So, the astrological treatise that he may be looking at, or maybe Porphyry is reading to him, for all we know, because um, Porphyry did say he was losing his sight at mm. the end and, you know, wasn't able to read very well. Perhaps somebody was reading to him. Mm. We, we do know that, like, um, Ptolemy is, in a sense, reforming astrology. You know, he's, he's trying to reform it 
to, to present a more naturalistic theory for it. And um, that is definitely something that Plotinus seems to be arguing against in this treatise. You know, it's, it seems to be more, more strongly going against, you know, this, this type of stars as causes, although he does still preserve that they are, they do have some effluences, you know, some type of causality as external, what he calls like external and external influence, but it definitely doesn't influence human choice. And he makes a much stronger argument for stars as signs, you know, rather than causes. So it's really hard to unpack, you know, the difference between these two in a sense. Yeah. You know, when it comes to reading the astrological texts. So that being said, I'm glad I'm glad we um, are coming back to this question of uh, to what degree do you think he presents a coherent theory? And to what degree do you think it's, there's some kind of unresolved tensions within his, his take? I think there are a lot of unresolved tensions in his, uh, in his theories. If he wants to preserve, you know, the stars as influences, he basically on, on one hand is saying, they're mixed influences, so you can't really trace it, you know, through, oh, this is the influence of the moon, this is the influence of Mars, and so forth, that it all get kind of gets mixed up in, you know, as it comes down to Earth. Right. Know, all these influences. This will be the exact critique of um, Ibn Sina, or one, one part of Ibn Sina's critique. It's like, yeah, they, the stars can be absolutely causal and absolutely sort of semiotic, but it's such, by the time they get to us, like, we have no way of picking out the different bits and saying, oh, this goes to Mars and this goes to Venus. It's like just this huge, it's far too complex to treat that right. way. Right. But then on the other hand, um, you know, because he wants to be as close to Plato as possible, you know, he has to account for the Republic 10, you know, which is, you know, on the, the fates, you know, basically, and, and, you know, the soul choosing its fate, you know, as it reincarnates. So this influence. is the myth of Ur for those lovers of Plato who've slightly forgotten the, the book ordering of the Republic. This is the myth of Ur where there's this underworld journey, which has a kind of strange astral interlude where we see the heavens and we learn about the spindle of Adrasteia. Yes, the spindle. Mm -hmm. mm. And, and there are other passages in Plato which seem to indicate or have been read um, by later philosophers as, you know, that the stars convey their influence as the soul is coming down to to be born <laughs> so if that's the case um then the stars in a sense are causing something which you know in the platonic world would be you know disposition you know you know you're disposed or predisposed toward these type of things or this type of temperament so Plotinus wants to account for that as well as he you know mentions you know some of these things at the end of this treatise it's almost, uh, he does seem to give concession <laughs> at the end that they do cause or have, have a causal influence on disposition or even ethical disposition. But of course, you know, the soul, you know, is, is free, you know, has choices, you know, so, and uh, if you think about this in terms of Plotinus's view of two souls, <laughs> you know, there's, there's the soul that actually descends and then there's a the soul that's always up in noose. It's the noetic soul or self. Yeah. You know, that is actually the one with all the freedom. <laughs> but while you're in this body, while you're embodied, you know, the influences of the, the planets, the planetary gods, it, it gets corrupted as it, as it comes down into matter. 
and we do see this, you know, mentioned in, I forget which of these treatises, he goes into this argument. I think it was the last one. But so you, you have um, basically not necessarily a consistent position on astrology as causal or signifying in Plotinus. Fascinating. He's definitely telling us some of the things that he thinks aren't right. It's not a hot, cold, wet, dry mm-hmm. type arrangement. It's right. not affecting the higher soul, just like magic. It can only affect the soul in the material cosmos. But there is some truth or relevance to what we might call astrological theory, even though he doesn't give a, an account of how it does work that we can really definitely put our finger on and say this is how this is his theory of well, astrology. Well, his, th- his theory is, is sympathia. <laughs> right. Yeah, okay. I, I believe that that's, if you, if you dig into the middle treatise there, you know, that's really <clears throat> at the heart of his theory. Of, of stars giving signs. So then the question becomes, how is that causal versus how is that just a kind of parallelism, non-causal parallelism between the higher and lower worlds? And that's the bit where we find trouble to really say. Yes, exactly. <laughs> he does accept divination. Yeah. You know, that, which, is, which is pretty interesting. But I think like you find in Sexus Empiricus, they're seeing, and even in Ptolemy, you know, Ptolemy, you know, talks about the fallibility of the human abilities to do astrology right and to make predictions. But it seems to be that for the, for the few and the rare, you know, their stars and, and other forms of divination work and, and make accurate predictions for the sum, <laughs> some, some people. <laughs> and if you look at Porphyry's biography of Plotinus, when he's talking about Plotinus's ability to read people, you know, which it verges on the the divinatory. Yeah. You know, that he can just zero in on a person and predict the children that, you know, were under his care. You know, he could predict, you know, how they would grow up and what kind of life they would lead. <laughs> and, you know, that could just be, you know, good fathering or, <laughs> you know, it could be, you know, a form of div- divination. Hmm. Well, he was able to find the, the slave who had stolen something as well, right? By just lining up all the slaves and then pointing to the guy who did it. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, he knew out. right away. <laughs> so he has that kind of... Just by looking at him. ...quasi-holy man ability to just look into people's souls. At least, I think that's what Porphyry is trying to, to mm-hmm. show about it. Yeah. Cool. Marilyn Lawrence, stay esoteric. I will. <laughs> 